And it reminded me of the fact that here at Spring Valley, uh, one of our four main vision points is that we are in the business of reaching and raising up the next generation in the faith, that it is part of our mandate uh, at Spring Valley and, and as Christians to raise up the next generation. And I think we are doing a, a really good job of that on, uh, here at Spring Valley. I'm really proud of our children's ministry here, and I'm proud of all of the people that are involved in that process. I'm proud of, of all the people that are involved in nurturing our children in the faith and, and making it uh, become a reality for them as individuals. And, you know, of course, that ties perfectly in with what we're talking about here on Mother's Day. Uh, our mothers are often the ones that uh, hand down the faith to us, that, that teach us the ways our, our mothers and our grandmothers, whether our biological mothers or our, our mothers here at church, uh, I think in, in different ways, we're all involved in this process of nurturing our young ones in, in Christ and helping them learn what it means to be Christian, to follow this person, Jesus. And so, yes, today is Mother's Day, and you know none of us would be here if it weren't for our mothers. Um, and I, I'm thankful for, for my mom and uh, all of the times that she prayed with me uh, at kitchen tables or at the kitchen counter. Um, it was my mom who introduced me really to, to, to Jesus uh, on one day when I was in about third grade. And um, it was uh, an important moment in my life. And, you know, from there I've grown and, and developed as a Christian, and uh, I'm thankful for that. Um, you know, this is uh, an important day in the lives of, of uh, many of us. Um, I did want to take just a moment to, to talk about what it means to be a mother and what it means to uh, have our identity grounded in our relationships uh, with our parents, um, because I think there's a lot of import over uh, between that and our relationships with God. And I think it's also important to acknowledge that sometimes Mother's Day is a painful day. Sometimes Mother's Day is a day that uh, we remember loss. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit last week uh, with Jessica Wright uh, about the loss that she experienced. And so I think there, there can be um, times and ways in which Mother's Day can be a painful experience. Uh, or if perhaps you didn't have a great relationship with your mother, that's, that, that can bring up old wounds. Um, so I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that too, because I think there is good motherhood and bad motherhood. I, I, I've seen examples of both. I've seen great examples of both. Um, and I, I, anyway, I, I was doing some research this week about this topic, about this idea of how, how do we get our examples of motherhood and, and what, what is good and bad motherhood. And one of the things that psychologists are now uh, realizing is that when we are first born, there's really no such thing as an infant uh, by itself apart from its mother, apart from its primary nurturing relationship. And so what psychologists have begun to refer to it as is that there's actually an infant slash mother. There's, there's one being between the two. Because what, what happens is infants actually see themselves in their parents' eyes. So their own personality 
their own sense of who they are is reflected back to them through their mother's eyes. That they begin to understand who they are because of who their mother is. And so what her eyes tell us about ourselves, we believe and become. I think it's the same way in prayer that we are both receiving and reflecting back to God our own sense of becoming, our own sense of who we are. And uh, Richard Rohr call, calls this the original knowing, that that kind of primal way of relating to our mothers in the sense that we are, we are one, we are unified, is foundational to who we are. That it is original to our, our DNA. It's embedded in our souls that we are deep down grounded in love. We are grounded in the gaze of those who love us. So there is no such thing as, as me by myself. I am infant mother. I am both myself and related to those around me. This is kind of, I talk a lot about kind of my mantra for life is, I am loved, therefore I am. This is kind of in opposition to the idea of, I think, therefore I am, that that just by being thinking beings, we have our existence. And, and I don't know that that's necessarily true. I, I really think this idea that I am loved, therefore I am, is more central to our identities. And it's, it's also this I, idea of our existence is bound up with another's existence. That I am who I am actually because of who God is. I am who I am because of who my mother is, who my father is, who my brothers and sisters are. I am who I am because of who my teachers were and are. So there, there's no such thing as me by myself. And Jesus says it this way, I am the vine and you are the branches. I abide in you and you abide in me. So I am in God and God is in me. I am who I am because of my relationships with God and with others. So I think it's important to remember that we are all created by God because we are created by God to love and be loved. And when we forget our original knowing, the sense of who we really are, when we begin to see ourselves through the eyes of others, rather than our mother, things begin to break down. Things begin to divide. And that's where we end up into places of separation and judgment and, and division. So we need to know that when we look to God, God's eyes are gazing upon us with love. And so that, that brings us to Psalm 139. Because if we, keep, or if we are keeping this in mind as we read this particular passage, 
it begins to make so much sense. Because this passage reminds us of our original knowing. Our original knowing that who we are is found in the divine gaze of love. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not night to you. Even the night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I tried to count them. They are more than the sand. And I come to the end, and I am still with you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am intricately woven in the depths of the earth. We are knit together in our mother's wombs. We are carefully crafted with all the potential in the world. And I think if we are honest with ourselves too, we are continuing to be created. It's not something that ends on the day of birth. We are always growing. As John Wesley would say, we're always moving forward toward perfection. We're always moving more and more into love. And so this, this passage, I think, really demonstrates this original knowing that we all have deep down. We are created by God to love and be loved. It is central to who we are. It is our core identity. I mean, these, these words just so beautifully represent how much God cares for each one of us, that we're intricately woven, that we are deeply cared for and loved, that we are not anonymous, that what it means to be human is that we are loved and created to love. And, and I think it's, you know, we've been talking about these different topics over the last few weeks of faith and science and, and faith and suffering and and I think it's, it's becoming more and more obvious that we are created 
You know, we talked about this a few weeks ago in Faith and Science, that there is, there does not have to be conflict between the different stories that science and religion tell. That we can still be honest about what science has to offer in terms of understanding our existence and how we got here. But perhaps it's, it's answering slightly different questions than what religion is answering, than what Christianity is answering. That we are still created beings. That as long as we recognize that in the beginning, God, dot, 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 we can know that we are secure in that understanding. And that the how we got here is not as important. So in this original story of creation, God creates human beings, male and female, he created them. It says, God created us in God's image. This idea, this image of God that we're created in is very simply love. If God is love and we're created in that image, we are created to reflect that. We are created in that image, in the image of love. We are created to love and be loved. And God's first words after that are be fruitful and multiply. That part of our human identity is our sexuality. That part of who we are as humans means that we are called to be fruitful and multiply. That we are called to love and to be loved and to do so in a way that reflects the divine gaze back to God and back to others. So our sexuality is part of the way that in which we live out the divine gaze to love and be loved. Sexuality is a good gift from God meant to make the world a better, more colorful place. And I think often in churches, we've given this subject a taboo, made it a taboo topic. When in actuality, we need to be talking about it more because it is central to who we are. And, and I think sometimes we separate our bodies from our spirituality, that these are like two distinct things, that we, we take this kind of dual approach to what it means to be human, that we kind of have these bodies and then we have this spirit over here. And I think that can often do us a disservice because we can care a whole lot about the soul and the spirit, but not much about the body. And this, this gets played out across the world if we aren't concerned enough about the bodies of people. We can say, look, I care about your salvation and what happens to you in eternity, but I don't really care that you're suffering and you're uh, in abject poverty or that you're hungry or that you are dying of uh, preventable causes. We need a spirituality that connects our body and our soul and makes it one. And so I think it is important for us to talk about faith and sexuality, especially in a time and in an age where we are re realizing the depth 
of corruption within sexuality. If you take a look at the Me Too movement, one in three women can expect to be sexually harassed or assaulted in some form or fashion in their lives. That's telling me that we have gotten something wrong in the way that we understand sexuality. When women are treated as objects, we've corrupted our core identity that says we are created to love and be loved. And, and sex trafficking and, and all that is involved in that, that, that we see it here in Dallas. I mean, Dallas is, is no exception to this problem. There are more people enslaved now than ever have been in the history of the world. And a, and a lot of that is because of sex trafficking. So the problem for us arises when we fail to live in the divine gaze and we mistreat our sexuality for selfish purposes. We need to be listening to each other. Now, we may not all agree on how exactly we are to talk about sexuality. We may have different opinions about how we think God views sexuality, in particular homosexuality. But the name of this place is Common Ground. And what we can agree on is that every person is created in the image of God to love and be loved. Every person is of sacred worth. And whether it's Me Too or the debate about LGBT persons, we need to know that it is our call to love others. That is our primary focus. And I hope that we can find our common ground there. Because we are struggling in the UMC right now. We're struggling in the United Methodist Church over this issue of homosexuality. And I hate to even call it an issue because my friends who are, are lesbian and gay are not issues, they're people. Again, we need to separate them from being objects and realize that they are human beings. Right now, our book of discipline states that homosexuality is incompatible with Christianity. But there are a lot of folks that want to change that language, including myself. The Council of Bishops recently gathered, and uh, I don't know how much you know about this, but over the past couple of years, they um, instituted a commission on a way forward uh, that grew out of our general conference in 2016 when we, uh, as a denomination, came to a standstill over the issue of homosexuality. Homosexuality, the, the language about it being incompatible was, was added to the Book of Discipline in 1974. And the United Methodist Church has been debating about that phrase ever since then at every general conference. A couple years ago when a general conference ended, the bishops were asked to 
uh, convene a commission on a way forward and bring together people of disparate groups to talk about how we were going to address this as a denomination. And they decided that we were going to have a special called General Conference in 2019. And so that's gonna happen next February. And this commission has been meeting on a regular basis and they are uh, people rep, uh, representing uh, every demographic you can think of. Uh, conservative, liberal, black, white, um, you know, old, young, all of the above. There are bishops on this commission. There are lay people on the commission. There are clergy people on the commission. Well, they came forward and brought forth three plans for the United Methodist Church on how to move forward. One was the traditionalist plan, which was kind of keeping things the way they are, not removing the language, and uh, uh, adding more strict enforcement of the language. The second was uh, creating kind of three different branches of the United Methodist Church under one umbrella. So there would be a conservative branch, a moderate branch, and a progressive branch in, in all likelihood. One would, um, would not allow same-sex weddings uh, in uh, gay clergy. One would allow for it but not compel uh, their pastors to do so. And the third would, would mandate that same-sex weddings and, and gay clergy should, must be um, allowed to be ordained uh, regardless of their sexual identity. So that was the second plan. That's called the three-branch model. So traditionalist, three-branch, and then the final one was the one-church model, which is simply removing the language and allowing for same-sex weddings within our churches and allowing our clergy to perform gay marriages, and, um, but not compelling them to. Uh, so you would not have to do a gay, a, a gay wedding if you did not want to. Um, and so the Council of Bishops actually uh, proposed a few weeks ago the one church model was their preferred uh, way. It received um, overwhelming support, but not, um, not complete support. And so that model is going to be proposed at the next general conference to be voted on. And uh, to be honest, I, I don't know exactly how that's going to go. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. What I do want to say is that I know in this place, we have people on all sides of this issue. We have people who agree with the traditionalist plan. We have people who agree with the progressive plan. We have people in between. Um, and, and, and I would say most uh, United Methodists are somewhere in the middle. Um, but what I do want to say is, again, this is a place called Common Ground. And if you want to talk about it, I, I want to talk about it too. And we can, we can do that um, outside of right now, but um, beyond this discussion. But I, I want to lift up a couple more things. Because the United Methodist Church does not just simply say homosexuality is incompatible with Christianity and leave it at that. There are, is other language in the Book of Discipline and it says this, we affirm that all persons are individuals of sacred worth created in the image of God. All persons need the ministry of the church in their struggles for human fulfillment, as well as the spiritual and emotional care of a fellowship that enables reconciling relationships with God, with others, and with self. We affirm that God's grace is available to all. We will seek to live together in Christian community 
welcoming, forgiving, and loving one another as Christ has loved and accepted us. We implore families and churches not to reject or condemn lesbian and gay members and friends. We commit ourselves to be in ministry for and with all persons. So when we exclude or treat LGBT, per, LGBT persons, or any persons for that matter, as less than, then I think we're not living into the divine gaze. I think we are forgetting that original knowing that makes us who we are. That when we fail to love another based on race or class or gender or sexuality, we are not reflecting the divine gaze. Because who we are, who we all are, are beloved children of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in our mother's wombs. God cares for each and every person. So our call today is to remember that and to share that deep down original knowing that we are all children of God. We affirmed in our singing earlier that when oceans rise, my soul will rest in God's embrace. For I am God's and God is mine. And Jesus says, if you remain in me, I will remain in you. And those who remain in me will bear much fruit. Our first calling is to love God with our whole heart soul, mind, and strength, our bodies, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And when we do that, we will remember that divine gaze that holds us, that embraces us, and that says we are God's and God is ours. If we do that, I am convinced if we keep our eyes fixed on the gaze of the creator who loves us and cares for us, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.